This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today, Dr. Schroeder Cherry. He's what you'd call an authority figure when it comes to museums. After all, his doctorate is in museum education. In addition to his expertise in museums, Dr. Cherry is a talented painter and puppeteer. His work and his art have taken him across the country and across the globe, but he feels at home here in Baltimore. He believes Baltimore's art scene is on the precipice of something big, and his work as an artist and educator are his contributions to the city's greatness. When I was a kid, my mom wouldn't let my sister and I watch MTV, so like any American child, I just did it when I went over a friend's house. For some reason or another, I remember the dating show singled out, and of course, there was Beavis and Butthead. I didn't really get any of the humor, but I laughed because when you're a kid, you laugh at stuff even when you don't understand it. When I was at home and around my mom, all I watched were cartoons. But that was when I was in elementary school, and as I got older, I was allowed to watch MTV, but I couldn't play Grand Theft Auto Vice City. So of course, when I went to my friend's house with cool parents, I ran over people in Vice City while listening to All Night Long by Mary Jane Girls. The early 2000s were a magical time. When I was younger, younger though, I watched whatever TV my mom put on. I feel like in the 90s, there were two camps of kids, those who liked Barney and those who liked Sesame Street. I probably watched both at some point, but I went to sleep with a stuffed Barney doll, so my allegiance was clear. Both Barney and Sesame Street employed the use of puppets to convey positive, wholesome messages. They were brightly colored with big eyes and mouths always slightly open when listening to humans talk to convey a level of harmlessness and wonder. In my mind, those were the good kind of puppets. The bad kind of puppets were the ones that scared me half to death. Puppets like the ones you saw in Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal, which means that Jim Henson is responsible for a lot of my childhood trauma, as well as salvation. Cousin Skeeter, I'd say, is a neutral puppet. He was black like me, but he got on my nerves sometimes. He was kind of annoying. The puppets of Dr. Schroeder Cherry, however, are puppets of his youth and his childhood. He'd model them after people he knew in his neighborhood. A man with a balding head and bushy eyebrows, or the local busybody with a long skirt, frizzy hair, and so many necklaces around her neck. Those were the people he knew growing up, from a bygone era some would say was a better time. I am from Washington, D.C., and I grew up at a time when Washington was known as Chocolate City. So I grew up in a predominantly African-American environment. I was surrounded by um, Black folks who were in all walks of life. Something that I took for granted at the time, but I uh, look back now and realize that was a particular, I, that was a particular experience growing up. We were surrounded by black professionals in all categories, and we just just took that for granted. And you will you will hear native Washingtonians say we can't say it's Chocolate City anymore uh, because the demographic has has changed. So what specific time period did you grow up in D.C. and what was the culture like back then? I grew up in a time when there was a lot of activity cultural wise. Uh, I was in high school in the early 70s and in Washington, I had exposure to some phenomenal people who were doing very creative things. Sweet Honey in the Rock with Bernice Reagan. Uh, was active. You had Black Repertory Theater with Robert Hooks before he left and went to the West Coast. Um, there was a program called Workshops for Careers in the Arts that was started by Peggy Cooper Capritz. And 
Mike Malone, who was at Howard University. Peggy at that time was at GW. And they put together a program that introduced high school kids to the arts, both the visual and the performing arts. And that was that was very instrumental to my exposure to art early on. Okay. And that feeds right into my next question. Did your interest in puppeteering come from those cultural and uh, community organizations and programs, or did it come from, let's say, like the typical route of watching kids shows, uh, Sesame Street in particular? <laughs> um, I have to say I predate Sesame Street. Sesame Street started in 1969, so by that time I was already in junior high school, about to go to high school. Uh, but my, my interest in puppetry and making art was a childhood experience because I, I was an arts kid. I, I always drew when I was a kid. I played with puppets. I made things out of blocks and crayons and painting. So I was always an arts kid. In high school, I had the opportunity to go to, at that time, what was one of the arts, um, the arts focused high schools. This, this predates the Duke Ellington School. So McKinley Tech had an art major program and I, I went there for two years in my senior year, however, I left and went to Switzerland. So I finished out my high school year in Switzerland as an exchange student, and I studied art while I was overseas. Talk to me about your experiences in Switzerland. That was really intense. Uh, it was my first time being in an environment that was not predominantly African-American. I learned a lot. I learned German, and I learned uh, Swiss German and, and Hochdeutsch, which is high German. It was a program that was designed to immerse you in, in a culture. So I stayed with a family in Switzerland. I went to school there. Um, I have to say studying in the classroom, one of my most difficult courses was English because the English teacher spoke with this accent that I just did not understand. She was Swiss and she had been educated in Oxford. So she had this British Swiss kind of thing going on and I just couldn't understand the woman but I excelled in mathematics because the symbols were the same. I recognized the symbols. So that was, uh, that was an eye-opener for me because I can't say that while I was back at home in the States, I wouldn't say that math was my favorite subject. It just became the one that I had strength in now because I understood the symbols. Okay, and I wanna get back uh, to your interest in um, puppetry. Did you find that that was the only way you could authentically express yourself? Because it's not common to find somebody who is a puppeteer or creates puppets. You know, there's, there's painters, there's photographers and stuff. So was it the only way you felt you could authentically express yourself? And when you were in Switzerland, did you bring um, any like material with you or did you make any type of puppets um, during your time in Switzerland? No, that's a good question. Um, I played with puppets when I was in elementary school, but by the time I was in high school, I wasn't playing with them anymore because it just wasn't cool for a high school kid to do puppets. <laughs> but when I got to college um, in undergrad, I, I studied at the University of Michigan. And before that, I was at Fisk for a year in freshman year. And during my freshman year, one of my instructors, Martin Purrier, who's a well-known sculptor, was doing these amazing kites. And I asked him why he was doing kites. He said that was something that interested him as a kid. And I thought, well, that's interesting. For me, my childhood interest was puppets. So let me, let me just kind of jump back and see how I feel as a grown college student about something that I was interested in as a kid. And I realized that I really enjoyed puppets. I really enjoyed making them. I, I enjoyed performing with them. One thing led to another. Later on, uh, I switched schools. I, I went to the University of Michigan 
And someone connected me with an artist in Chicago who was a puppeteer. I made a connection and ended up apprenticing under him while I was an undergrad. Um, I, during the daytime, I worked at the Art Institute of Chicago because my focus was museum work. And in the evening, I spent time at his studio, which was in a warehouse district in Chicago. So after spending some time with him and graduating from the university, I wanted to be on my own and, and start my own style and, do, and doing performances. I kept it up and there was a lot of exploration that went on, which is what, which is what most puppeteers do. Puppeteers do a lot of ex exploratory <laughs> uh, activity when they're figuring out how to put a show together. And I had a, what I would call a, a three track career. I was, I considered myself a visual artist, a museum person because that paid the bills and also a puppeteer. But I kind of juggled the three of them at the same time. And when I was working in the museum field, I found a way to, in, to integrate the puppets. For example, I later started using a puppet in a major museum just for adults because I wanted to establish a space where adults could play. So I have a puppet who is designed just to deal with adults in a gallery. Can you talk about how you physically build the puppet itself? And was that craft self-taught self or, or did you learn it from a mentor? I learned a lot from the mentor. And then later on, I uh, started doing my own thing. But my process is rather tedious because it's an, it's an old school process of casting, using clay to make a model, making a plaster model, and then using a material that's called plastic wood. I use plastic wood for my puppets. A lot of puppeteers today don't use that material. Most puppeteers today will use either fabric or they'll use another kind of sculpting material that's lightweight. But I use plastic wood because I'm comfortable with it. I know its peculiarities and it also lasts forever. I've got some puppets that are uh, that I made in college. Um, they're, they're still workable because the material is durable. So I cast the head and hands out of the out of the plastic wood. The bodies are soft sculpture, pretty much like dolls. So I I um, sew the bodies together and then and stuff them. They fill you know fill them up like a doll's body. And then I attach the the heads and the hands. My puppets typically have eyes and mouths that open and close. So there's a spring mechanism inside the head with pulleys and a string a spring and a string uh, so that I can pull the eyes and mouth with uh, two fingers while I'm holding the puppet. Okay, so it seems like it, obviously there's a level of artistry and creativity that comes to it, but when it comes to actually building the puppets, that's more of like the math and engineering, right? And it's, it's all of the above. It's math, it's engineering, <laughs> it's creativity, it's art. Uh, yes, it's, it's all of that. Ah, okay. Well, after you finish constructing it, you have to paint the puppet. So you have to paint it, the skin tone you want, the eyes, the eyes, lips, nose, mouth, ears. Uh, and my puppets have hair, except for the ones that are bald. So you have to do the whole hair and cosmetic thing as well. What happens if you uh, make a mistake? Do you have to start all the way over or can you remold it? With the material that I use, uh, you, can, you can break and make over. Any puppeteer will tell you, invariably something's going to go wrong you're going to break something at some point so you just have to figure out how to fix it so yeah we're puppeteers are good at mending uh i've had a puppet i've had a puppet travel to an exhibition and come back with a smashed head so i just call it surgery <laughs> you take it back you take it down to the studio put it on the workbench and you uh you 
take it apart so that you can put it back together again. Gotcha. Like Humpty Dumpty. In your experience, when you've put on puppet shows and uh, exhibitions and stuff, how do you put on a puppet show for kids versus one that you would put on for adults? It depends on the show. If I'm do and I have to say that a lot of my shows are family oriented, so they're intergenerational. One show is called Underground Railroad, Not a Subway. So that's just presented one way straight through. So adults see the same things as kids see, but what they take away is based on what they bring to the arena. So a kids will, the kids will pick up on certain things and adults will pick on something else, but that's the same show. If I'm doing a show explicitly for adults, that gives me more leeway with language um, and with content. Let's get back to your education, uh, specifically after high school. Um, I know that you completed your uh, your coursework for a bachelor's and, and a master's, and then you went on to receive your doctorate in um, museum education. So as a doctor of museum education, could you tell us like little details or things about a museum that the average museum goer or person may not know? Oh, sure. Um, I think the average person doesn't know the number of museums there are in the US. Do you know? You want to take a guess? Uh, I'll say 600. 35,000. 35,000? There are 35,000 museums in the US, yes. Now this includes museums of all disciplines, art museums, history museums, historic houses. There are a lot of little uh, historic museums in the countries, and that's what you'll find the largest number of. Most people think that the larger number of museums are art museums, but art museums only make about uh, less than a quarter of all the museums in the US. But total, there are 35,000 museums in the US. And what is it about certain disciplines that would allow them to have more museums than another? Because I figured art museums would be the most prevalent since you know traditional forms of art seem to be the most accessible. Uh, so yeah, what influences what building or what discipline gets a museum and what doesn't? You can have a museum of, of any discipline. If you're asking about the numbers, history is the largest number of museums in this country. And that's because you can have historic houses, you can have a community to decide that a house that belongs to a famous person needs to become a museum. So they'll, they'll gather their resources and they'll establish a museum. That's just one example. Um, and the, the history museums range in size from very tiny, where you'll have like maybe one, um, one house and a staff of three people and then a bunch of volunteers, all the way up to a large museum, such as what you see on the mall at Smithsonian in Washington, DC. Mm, okay, and are there puppetry or puppet museums out there in the nation? We do have a few puppet museums. There's, a, there's an International Museum of Puppetry in Atlanta. There's another uh, puppetry museum in Washington State. Uh, we have a few doll museums in the country as well. Okay, and have you had an opportunity to, uh, to visit them? I have had the opportunity to visit them. Fortunately, in my career, at one point, I was the deputy director for museums for the United States. And I had a chance to visit museums across the country. Uh, that gave me access to a lot of places. We'll be right back after a quick break. And when we return, my guest Schroeder Cherry talks about his artwork and the state of Baltimore's art scene. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. Stay with us.
Hey, I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. And before the break, my guest, Dr. Schroeder Cherry, spoke about growing up in D.C., falling in love with puppetry, and visiting dozens of museums across the nation. Dr. Cherry has seen a lot of art on display, but he's had some of his own art on display as well. So I want to move uh, to your artwork now. Um, A lot of the artwork I have seen from you, it's your wood and your reclaimed uh, material series, most notably the uh, Barbershops and Porters exhibition that I I attended at City Hall. Um, And just a brief background, a lot of those pieces will show kind of like slice of life scenarios or scenes of, um, for example, for barbershops and porters, uh, people who um, occupied those types of positions and the impact that they have on the Black community. Uh, Does the material itself, though, have a role to play in the story that you're trying to tell of the African diaspora? The material definitely has a role to play. I started off as a painter and I got to a point where I was just abusing the canvas because I was was cutting, burning and scraping and sewing and stuff. And I thought I needed a stronger foundation. So when I experimented, I realized maybe wood would would work for me because then I could do what I wanted to do and then shape it, shape the thing so that it's not just a square. That's when I started uh, hanging out in the lumber yards and talking to guys about wood, how I should cut, what kind of tools I need. And that was my that was my leap from the canvas. So the works I do now allow me to attach other objects like keys and locks and razors, things that have a weight, they can be supported by the wood. I can't say that the wood choice had anything to do with an ethnic background or the African diaspora. That was just an aesthetic choice for me, artistically. Okay, and a a follow-up on that aspect, uh, artistic choice. When you made the jump from painting to working with the wood and the reclaimed materials, did you feel like you were leaving a part of you behind on the canvas or it just felt more like a natural progression and evolution for you? The only thing I was leaving behind was the canvas. <laughs> I, Cause I still consider myself a painter primarily. I, what I, what I do now could be called assemblage or assemblage because I'm putting things, I'm assembling things on the wood, but I'm still primarily a painter. I'm painting all the objects that I, that I assemble and I'm just attaching them to the wood. Yeah. As you were describing it and I was thinking about it, that makes uh, that makes sense. You would still primarily be considered a painter. It, you just changed the medium that you, you paint your stuff onto, right? Yes, the foundation material is now is no longer cloth, it's now wood. But I, I should also explain that although I'm working in wood, my pieces are primarily two-dimensional. I do some three-dimensional work, but I'm usually limiting it to a two-dimensional or a, or a relief. So uh, most of the wall pieces are meant to be on the wall. They're not meant to be viewed in the round. Is there a specific reason for that or it's just how, how, how comfortable you are? I'm comfortable with doing the the relief. I have done, I still do pieces in the round. Um, That happens occasionally. It's just not my my preference, I guess. I do still like the flat image. It gives me me some parameters to work with when I'm producing. Okay, and just to clarify, does in the round mean this is just a piece that you could walk around and look at all angles and aspects of it? Yes, you have you have front, back, and sides, and top and bottom in the round. 
Can you just go over some of the recurring themes in your works and what they represent for you? I You mentioned uh, locks and keys, and I know based off of my research, that is like a theme of um, access to certain things. So can you just uh, expand on that and provide some additional examples? Sure. The objects that, that have found their way into my works, uh, they weren't intentional initially. They just kind of found their way into the pieces. Keys, for example, I recognize that everybody I know has got at least one key. They've had it for more than a year, but they don't know what it belongs to. <laughs> Even though they don't know what it belongs to, they are very reluctant, very reluctant to give it up. So what is it about the power of keys? That really intrigues me. So I started collecting keys and now people are actually giving me keys and those have become part of the supply. It's no longer just the key for me. It's now part of the material. It's like the paint. I, I paint, I have keys, I have locks. Keys represent tools of access. You can open something up or you can lock it away. The same thing with locks. You can open something up if you have the right combination or the right key, or you can close it up. It's about access. My pieces tend to be narrative. They all have a story behind them. They're open narratives because I don't think there's any one story. I like actually eavesdropping in a gallery. I will go to a gallery and not identify myself as the artist and try to eavesdrop on conversations just to hear what people are saying about the work. Because when you hear them, when you're eavesdropping, it's unfiltered. They're really giving you what they think about the piece. Um, so I, I, get some, I really get some rich material just by eavesdropping. But sometimes lately, especially since people are wearing masks, you can't really you can't really hear that well what they're saying. So I will identify myself. I say, "Hi, I'm the artist. I was trying to eavesdrop. I can't really hear what you're saying, but you know, let me know if you have any questions." <laughs> and we have a good conversation that way. And ha have you ever been in a situation like that where you're trying to eavesdrop and then like somebody figures out that you're the artist before um, you tell them? Like, have you ever had your cover blown before? Uh, not a lot. No, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty cautious about it. Cause the way I, the way I can side up to a person, you don't know if I'm a visitor or not. I could just, yeah, I could just be another person looking at the piece closely, uh, just close to you. I'm not, it's not like I'm putting my ear to their mouth. You know, I'm just kind of siding up to them and looking at the work as they're talking. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I can't say that my, my cover has been blown too much. But I don't take it too far. I, I don't take it too far. I do let them know who I am eventually. <laughs> do you ever uh, side up to somebody and then kind of just say like, oh, oh wow, this, the, the, the art's really great here. I would love to talk with the artist. No, I, I haven't been that cheeky. No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it, but no, I didn't do that. So you've been in this DMV area for uh, for a while now, and you've also had a successful career in the museum industry as well as um, with your art. What is your opinion on the current state and the future of the Baltimore art scene and the DMV as a whole? I can speak more to the Baltimore arena. The DMV is pretty broad and it's, it's, very, it's a very different scene from Baltimore than it is in Washington, for example. Baltimore is, I think, very cultural friendly. You have, a lot of, uh, you have a lot of institutions who are producing artists. Baltimore is also an easy city to live. Um, the income, however, is lower than Washington. The median income in Baltimore is about $50,000. That's much less than other parts of the other parts of Maryland, actually, because of the demographic and because of employment opportunities. So that, that's one thing. But also, 
it's an easier place in what in Baltimore to find a place to live. Um, the real estate is not as outrageous as it is in the nation's capital in my hometown. So you'll find people in Baltimore who are able to sustain their craft without having to have a lot of money just to pay rent. And um, do you think that the future of the Baltimore art scene is like a bright one? Do you think that those institutions that are that are uh, pushing out those artists, they are going to be um, making waves and, and shifting the industry into like a, a more positive place? Well, I think we've already, Baltimore has already done that. You've got people who have come here and made really, who've made waves. You've got the, the young lady who created Michelle Obama's portrait that was done here in Baltimore. You've got kids coming out of Micah, Towson, um, Morgan State has an art program. So you have people who are creative and very productive here. I don't see that stopping anytime soon. In fact, during COVID, there was a shakedown because of access and isolation, but what people managed to do was find a way to be creative even during the isolation periods. I have to say that the isolation did not affect me as, it, as dramatically as it, as it did some people because my studio was in my home. So I had access to my studio during, during the isolated period. I just went downstairs and started working. There are other artists who did not have access to the studio. So they, were, they had a pretty traumatic experience when they had to reshift and figure out how, to, how are they going to make their art when they don't have access to their normal place of making art. So for some people, and this is later on when you had the pop-ups because the pop-ups didn't happen immediately. The pop-ups were an opportunity for people to show and also for people to gather outdoors and see, and see their works, that was good. Another thing that came out of the, the isolation was what happened online. There was um, a group of people who started what's called Made in Isolation. And that wasn't any one particular art form or discipline. It was whatever you were doing creatively in isolation, join our group on Facebook and you can post it. That became a community in itself that's still ongoing. People are sharing what they're doing. Sometimes it's art, sometimes it's music, it could be poetry, sometimes it's food. Whatever they were doing in isolation, they're just kind of sharing it. And that's a, that became another community of sharing. The city, I think, was also very responsive. You got the Baltimore Office of Promotion and the Arts. They were aware that artists were struggling. So they came up with some emergency funds. And also the Maryland State Arts Council as well came up with some grants that were available to, to artists. So there were opportunities to earn and income during the time, but it was traumatic for a lot of artists. Uh, performers especially suffered because they lost a lot of gigs. I lost a lot of puppet gigs uh, as a performer because I performed with Young Audiences Maryland and we perform in schools throughout the state. The schools, when the school shut down, we didn't have those performances anymore. So Young Audiences shifted and started doing some virtual presentations. So everybody had to be creative in terms of how they were going to respond to this COVID issue. Okay, well, um, I always ask this question uh, for for my guests: um, What is coming up next for you? <laughs> I'm I'm in the up next right now. I'm working on a series called Future Voters, and that is in response to the voter suppression efforts that have been going on, uh, especially since we're hitting midterms. We're not hearing a lot about that in the news currently because all the news is focused on what's going on in Europe with Ukraine and Russia. But unfortunately, there are still 
on our side of the ocean, there are still issues going on with voter accessibility. So I'm taking that idea and focusing on young kids who are experiencing these things without understanding what voter suppression efforts are at the moment. But later on, they are going to be voters. They're going to be people who go to the polls. So what does that look like? And I'm using those images uh, in the artwork that I'm using, uh, making assemblages. Okay, okay. There's currently an exhibit at Stevenson University that's going on. It'll be up until July 31st. I've got 22 pieces there in addition to an entire wall where the students have taken 187 of my portrait sketches and put them and plastered them on the walls. They did an, a, an incredible job. Lori Rubling was the curator for that. So I, um, I invite anybody who can get to Stevenson University, the Green Valley campus, to go over and take a look at that show. That was artist and puppeteer Dr. Schroeder Cherry. You can find him on Instagram at S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R dot Cherry. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Local Color. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jason V. The podcast is distributed by Your Public Studios. New episodes of Local Color will be released the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Learn more about Local Color at WYPR.org.